Welcome to Weber Wenzel Legal Insights. With over 150 years of experience and deep industry knowledge, Weber Wenzel is the leading full-service law firm on the African continent. We agreed to the broadcast but I think the one thing that Harry and I were not ready for, nor were the investigation teams, nor was the judge, and the assessors, for the influx of media, what it would logistically take to house everyone, to keep everyone under wraps, to let everyone understand the rules from publishing, from photos, from what court adjournments meant. So in the end, it worked out but I think we all were rather nervous because it was the first time. This is Weber Wenzel Legal Insights. I'm Dario Milo. Welcome to another episode in our series on media law, a field that I specialize in and love to talk about, especially when it means having discussions with some of the brightest minds in the business, as I get to do on this podcast. And today we're gonna to be looking at the topic of open justice. This is a principle of the common law, which at its bedrock means that legal proceedings are open to the public, um, and that includes the contents of court files and indeed the public viewing and commenting on trials. It's an area that has received much judicial attention over the years, first because as a principle it has been extended to many quasi-judicial proceedings and tribunals. And secondly, we've seen broadcasting of court cases, which has become very commonplace in South Africa, even of criminal trials. Uh, but as a principle, open justice also has its limits. And to illustrate this, the Constitutional Court recently confirmed in the Zephanie Nurse case that the general rule is that you can't identify minors involved in criminal proceedings, even after they become adults and reach the age of 18. Now, to help me unpack this topic I have on the show today, Advocate Andrea Johnson of the National Prosecuting Authority. She was the co-prosecutor with Gerinal of Oscar Pistorius. And we're delighted to have her in the Weber Wenzel studio, which is really a Weber Wenzel boardroom converted into a studio with us today. Uh, Andrea was also part of the team who successfully convicted former National Police Commissioner Jackie Salibi of corruption in 2010. Uh, I also have in the studio Franny Rabkin, associate editor of The Mail and Guardian phenomenal legal writer. She has written for many publications over the years, including The Business Day, The Sowetan, The Herald, The Daily Dispatch, and The Financial Mail. She's also legally qualified and clerked at the Constitutional Court. So we're very happy to have both of you and excited to talk about this. Andrea, maybe let's start with you. I first met you when I was involved for Multi-Choice and Prime Media in their application to broadcast the Oscar Pistorius trial. You, of course, as I've said, was, uh, were, were one of the, the prosecutors of Oscar Pistorius. Now, that case was unprecedented in South African law because there had never been a live broadcast until then of a criminal case and a yes. criminal trial. And one of our strategies as the lawyers for the media was to engage with the NPA and try and reach an accommodation. And we engaged with, with you and with Advocate Nell and other leaders in the NPA um, and struck an agreement about the limits of the broadcast and what could and what couldn't be live broadcast. And ultimately, the court overruled the objections of Oscar Pistorius and ordered that the trial should be broadcast live via audio. 
and there should be video broadcast of the professional witnesses and whoever consented. Can you explain why the NPA considered that it would be a good idea that that case should be broadcast? Way in the beginning, we, especially the prosecutors, we were dead, we were dead set against um, the broadcast. And I think it goes back to how criminal process works. And paramount to us, especially Harry and myself, having consulted with the many witnesses, was understanding how intimidating a matter of that nature was, given the profile of the accused. So it's always our interest to safeguard the witness. Um, I guess in the end, all things considered, um, a few legal minds, I guess in hindsight, I would say correctly, <laughs> advised that it should be broadcast. We agreed to the broadcast. But I think the one thing that Harry and I were not ready for, nor were the investigation teams, nor was the judge and the assessors, for the influx of media, what it would logistically take to house everyone, to keep everyone under wraps, to let everyone understand the rules from publishing, from photos, from what court adjournments meant. So in the end, it worked out, but I think we all were rather nervous because it was the first time. It was really a partnership at the end between all the participants in the trial, the defense, the accused, the prosecutors, the media, Judge Masipa and the way she regulated the proceedings in an attempt to try and make it work. And I think it did ultimately. I think the one thing that I would change is the number of persons allowed. I had never seen so much of media in my entire life. Mm -hmm. And I, I think the thing that set me back is courtrooms are meant for the public. It is the right of the public yes. to sit and watch a case. Yes. That wasn't so in this instance. So in as much as one thought that they were streaming in their homes through the various media, unfortunately, the public gallery, which is meant for the public, had to house 80 media houses. One bench to be shared by the family of the accused, family of the deceased, yes. and only one bench for the gallery. For me, that was the travesty. Yes. So one would have to consider regulating the numbers, I guess. I think that's a fair point. And, and it's actually quite ironic, of course, in the sense that the broadcasters who were in charge of it had to share the live feed with all the other broadcasters. It was a condition of the order. And all you know, in all these orders, one of the conditions is you can't have a monopoly as the broadcaster who happens to have brought the application so that you either charge for the feed or that you keep it exclusive to yourself. The whole point is because it is open justice, you've got to share that feed. So um, I wonder whether the volume of media in the courtroom was a product of the broadcasting or was simply a product of the high profile nature of the case? I think it was a combination of both. Probably a combination. Um, what people may not have noticed is international media are quite bossy. They're quite pushy. And perhaps one would say they don't understand our rules of justice and our court process. And I mean, it was quite heartening that Judge Moseneke in a speech um, after the broadcast said that it was a welcome development, that generally it went well. The general rule now is that criminal proceedings are streamed or broadcast live. There are no restrictions about audio or video in general. Do you think that's a good thing? And do you think that is, in fact, the practice in criminal cases around the country? I don't think it should be a general rule. I think it's each case on its merits, and I'll tell you why. You know, if I look at the toll it took on some of our witnesses in terms of their details being broadcast live, and I think the thing that people don't get is if you have that live streaming of the audio and the video simultaneously, it's just my view. It has a tendency, because we're all human, to influence the next witness. It does. 
So witnesses didn't come in and lie, but they already came in where they had not been nervous during interviews in consultations. They were now nervous. They were nervous about what the public would say. And so they stopped thinking about what they knew they had to say in terms of what happened with regards to the incident and what they witnessed. Yes. I mean, maybe one day we'll get to the point, if I can quote Ponan, uh, Judge Ponan, who's one of my favorite judges in the Van Bredal case, where he says, as society becomes more attuned to cameras in the courtroom, the novelty will dissipate and cameras will fade into the background. Maybe that'll happen and witnesses will feel less intimidated in due course. But maybe to bring Franny, you in here, as the quintessential legal reporter in the country, someone I know very well and have worked uh, with for many years, do you have a view on whether broadcasting or live streaming enhances the quality of legal journalism? Maybe not even the live, but just the broadcast of legal, legal proceedings. But I think even more so with live has made a huge difference to our public's understanding of the law, of what's at stake and what's issues and, and having more confidence in our courts. And I think that's, that's a hugely positive development. I do hear Andrea's point about witnesses. I think it's a good point. And I, I somehow think that there's a balance to be found somewhere. But what I would say is that, you know, for lawyers, for you guys, courts are very familiar places. For most people, they are mysterious places. That's quite right. They don't know how they work. And I just find it so fantastic that you see the South African public really engaging with the courts, understanding how they work. It, it only deepens our, judici our judicial institutions the more people can access them, I would say. I think that, I mean, I certainly share that view and certainly in relation to applications and appeals where yeah. there can't be any issue of a witness being intimidated. It seems to me a no-brainer. Um, and it always amuses me that sort of England is sort of tentatively now allowing on an experimental basis the broadcast of appeal cases in the Court of Appeal. Whereas for us, you know, Hillary Squires and his delivery of the Sheikh judgment many, many years ago on TV, uh, you know, from that moment on, it became quite routine to have judges at least announce their judgments in, uh, on, on television. And of course, we've seen uh, most of the very, very important constitutional decisions, uh, other cases, whether it's in the High Court or the Supreme Court of Appeal or the Concord being broadcast. And, and I, I agree with you, Franny, that that certainly enhances the public's understanding and Andrea, maybe even the public's knowledge of concepts like dolus eventualis. Oh, yes. You know, uh, I think that became a household term. Yes. <clears throat> so before the husband went off to buy bread, you probably told him about dolus eventualis if he didn't come back with the bread. <laughs> but, you know, just to touch on a point that Franny made that's, that's really important is, yes, at the time when the media was allowed into the Pistorius matter, you would have to appreciate, Daria, that it was new. It was new for yes. all of us. When you sit back, there's a lot of things that we might have been able to tweak and do differently. But had we not had that experience, I don't think we'd be able to even have this kind of discussion. That's right. But something that, that's very important about what the broadcast brought out is access to justice for the normal South African is still really vague and mythical. And if this is all that the broadcast did is allow every single South African insight into a courtroom and court process, then I think our job was done. I wonder from the media's perspective often how they decide 
whether to go and report on a particular case. I mean, public interest, of course, plays a role. But Franny, in your experience, how are you? How do you make those kinds of decisions? They, I mean, they're difficult. They are. I mean, it's it's very difficult. And one of the things that I, I mean, I didn't do Oscar Pistorius, and one of the reasons I didn't do Oscar Pistorius was because I said to my editor, "Do you know how many?" alleged femicides we have in this country every day that you don't send me to. Yes. Why are you sending me to this, to this one? one? Yes. And I fought with them about it because for me, I know, I mean, as a journalist, other journalists would laugh at me about this. But for me, I, I feel like the femicide issue is an, is an issue that shouldn't be about celebrities. It's a crisis in this country. And I would, I would rather spend however many weeks the Pistorius trial took in mm. a magistrate's court in a rural area and see how that case mm. is done. And, and you know, we, we, we do that. We've actually, we, we took a decision at the Mail and Guardian that we're actually going to do that. And we've been doing that. But it's always a difficult choice because the truth is everyone wants to know about what's going on. It in sells newspapers. It right? sells it newspapers. It gets and, bums on I seats. I mean, and he was kind of like a national hero. Yes. Um, and I'm not taking away from any of that. I'm a journalist. I know all of that. But it is, and it's always a difficult decision, even for, I don't usually do criminal trials, but even for other legal stories, two things will be happening on the same day, and we have one reporter, and I have to make a decision whether I go to this or whether I go to that. And with broadcast, it's harder because it's not just one person. It's a team. It's equipment. It's getting the permission beforehand. It's all of that. It used to be the case, and hopefully it's not so much anymore, that it was almost like the rookie who was sent, the, um, the journalist fresh out of, out of university was sent to cover court cases. It's such a specialized job. I know that the good legal journalists out there, like Franny, for example, will always phone, will always get comment, will get background information about the case, will understand whether uh, her understanding of the case is correct or not. And you do need, I think, more of that engagement with legal journalists and, and frankly, more, more training for legal journalists, in, in my view. I also have made many mistakes and I've seen the many mistakes that my colleagues have made. Um, from our side, the, the part that we find really difficult, and since I have someone from the National Prosecuting Authority here, I can't not raise this. Opportunity. <laughs> I can't you are a journalist. So. I am a journalist. What we find hard is that you must remember when you guys walk into the court, you've read everything, you know the processes, you have all the background. In the constitutional court, for example, I can go to the website, I can download Mm. the court papers, I can read them all, and I do that. Increasingly in the high court, we are now able to phone the attorneys and say, may I have your papers so that you are prepared, you know what the issues are. With criminal cases, I think one of the reasons why the reporting Mm. is so bad on criminal cases is because you don't have any of that. You come in cold. You come in completely cold. It's very hard to prepare. And as well, obviously, unless you've either got some background in law or you have been doing courts for a while, all the rules of evidence, the rules of procedure, we don't know them. And even now as a journalist of... 13 years with a legal background and quite meticulous about preparing. When I go into cases 
where I don't know what to expect. So for example, when I was reporting the Mohoro inquiry, mm. the documents were kept, we were only allowed them after the witness had given mm. the testimony. I really struggled. Mm. And I was so nervous because you can miss one word and you can get everything wrong and you're live tweeting mm. and you're doing web stories. It's, and we, we are aware of the responsibility on us. We know that people are watching and, and listening and we just can only do the best we can. Mm. And, all, and so my appeal is, especially with the prosecutors, is to also engage with us. Mm. One of the things that really worked nicely in that particular inquiry was that there was a media liaison who was incredibly approachable and she would come and say to us, you know what, there was a mistake. And yes. immediately we would fix it as best as we could. And that's the other thing that I think people don't realize. People will read a newspaper and say, ooh, terrible mistake, and not tell me. Yes. I don't want to make mistakes. I want people to call you, me You and want say, that feedback. I so want that feedback. That's how we learn, but we don't get it. And Fanny, you mentioned PIC. The PIC inquiry also brings um, the topic of access to tribunals. And one of the issues that I know is close to your heart is the Judicial Service Commission and the Judicial Conduct Tribunal. And we know at the moment they're seized with a particularly important matter, which is Judge John Schlope and the second high-profile complaint against him, this time by the Deputy Judge President of that um, division. He faced, of course, a complaint still unresolved by the Constitutional Court many, many years ago about a decade ago now. What is your view on whether those proceedings should be open to the public? I mean, I think the tribunals, the actual tribunal, no one would argue that they should be open to the public. And so far, they have been open to the public. Yes. The interesting one for me right now is the committee. The Judicial Conduct Committee is actually meeting today to make a decision on whether there's a prima facie case of gross misconduct. Now there's two complaints, so they, they have to decide whether there's a prima facie case of gross misconduct on both. And they might be hearing oral evidence submissions. or submissions, sorry, yeah. And in under the act, it says that those meet, the default position is that the meetings are closed unless there's a good public interest reason why not to. So yesterday I, approached the Judicial Service Commission and said, can I come? And I was told no. And then the really hard thing is that, so I was toying, I even got in touch with you about, yes. should we bring an application bring an application, or storm in there and demand yes. or something. But the hard part is, is the delay that that will cause. And because what we've seen, particularly in the case of Judge President Lope, is how much intervening litigation has delayed the resolution of right. the issue and what impact that has done to the judiciary. And I kind of thought maybe let me let this one go. You, so you have that, to choose your battles, right? Right, yeah. exactly. And not to this might not yeah. be the battle that, that would actually have a delaying effect on the process because it's actually quite urgent that they get to a point where they can yes. at least decide whether to suspend. Because yes. right now in that division, there is a judge president and a deputy judge president in conflict. And to me, it feels that it should be untenable. I don't know how they're actually doing it, but yes. that's what's going on. And actually, the interesting history on the Schlope issue, Judge Schlope issue, is that when the first complaint came from the Constitutional Court a decade ago. 
the Judicial Service Commission, I thought very wisely, asked for submissions on whether it should be open to the public. And everyone made submissions. We made submissions for media companies, including the Mail and Guardian. You know, Cal's made submissions, Vitz made submissions. Then the Judicial Service Commission decided, I think it was about a week before the hearing, not to grant the public access. So we had to get the urgent application and we were succeeded in that. Um, and, and eventually the public was granted access. But often that practical delay of saying the obstacle of creating the need to, first of all, brief lawyers, incur significant expense in um, going to court to try and stop that. Um, I wonder whether there's a better way and there almost should be a general principle to say, unless there's good reason, and many of the rules do say this, to exclude the media, they should be allowed into these kinds of proceedings. Andrew, I don't know if you have a view. So, so everyone would like to know what goes on in a criminal court. Yes. Yes. Even more so with the judiciary. They are the gatekeepers of justice. I'd like there to be openness, fairness, and transparency in terms of those custodians of justice. We are constantly told in the media, and you know, between the NPA and certain defense councils, we get attacked no end. But we are constantly told about the ethics and integrity of the judiciary. So put it out there. Mm. Show it to us on an open plate, your ethics and your integrity. If you are credible, you have nothing to hide. Put it on an open forum. It's as simple as that. Because what is it that could be said in that tribunal, in, in that misconduct hearing, in the JSC, that I don't have a right to hear. Exactly. That you don't have a right to hear. We all have a right to hear. And I would like to know that the judiciary, in as much as they go out and say, we are not tainted, we are not compromised, now show it to us, and, and you haven't. And this might be the most opportune time. And so I, I hear friend and I hear yourself about you know, causing delays and not. What is the bigger thing to gain? Cause that short delay. It's in the public's interest that you cause that short delay. This is not justice delayed and justice denied where you have a criminal matter with the victim. You have someone who runs the system toward a deputy judge president. Even yeah. for the preliminary meeting, you're saying, because this one, the JCT, the tribunal itself, is still to come if it comes. This is like the preliminary thing. And that, and that should certainly be in public. So this is Yes, the no, I mean, that I will fight for. I, yes. I will, yes. I will <laughs> toy, toy outside if I have to. No, I, I agree with Daryl. You'll pick your fights. Yeah. What is there to gain for you having access now? And, th and that's the question to ask. To ask. If, if letting this process go means getting to the real process faster yeah. is what is achieved, and then having access to that process, then I let this one slide as well. So I guess you'll just weigh your pros and cons. And what do you get out of knowing who's going to sit and who's not going to sit? You'll fight the fight when they do sit. The council's advice is always brilliant and, and always <laughs> taken well. So thanks for that. Thank you. Andrea. Last topic really before we have to close is to talk a little bit about the exceptions to open justice. Because of course that's the general rule and we understand why it's so important. We've spoken about some of the rationales here, but there are exceptions. Arbitration is one exception. Private arbitrations being between corporates, which happen all the time, and where major jurisprudence is created and yet not public, is one of the areas where the, the media and the public have no access. And, and Fran, I, I'd like to ask you about that. What is your view on whether the public should have the right or the media to attend arbitrations? So, I mean, this has been a, a concern for me for a long time. We have had 
dicta from the Constitutional Court about the importance of multinational or big companies, how much power they wield in our society. We know that when they are in dispute, it happens behind closed doors. We don't know how they're resolved. And yet there are things at stake there for South Africans. There's the economy, there's jobs, and yet they seem to get a free pass. It is not easy for litigants to have all their affairs open to the public the way they are in court. It's intrusive. It's hard. I don't see why corporates should get away with not having to deal with that. Obviously, no one wants their stuff mm. aired in the public. Mm. No one does. Even when you're having a, your divorce case, that's open sure. to the public. Sure. It's more private than a fight between two mining houses. Over money. Yeah. yeah. So I feel really strongly that we should be granted access to this. And I've also toyed with the idea of making an application. My problem is I never know when these arbitrations are happening. So yes. I can't, I don't even well, know when to right. actually bring even them because even that right. is, that is secret. And what I found amazing, you know, people talk about how the government is so untransparent and it doesn't tell you anything. Try and get information out of private <laughs> companies. It's another kind of stonewalling and bullying and I mean it's it's serious and private companies in South Africa really get away with all kinds of things that you wouldn't see in other countries in terms of when they're dealing with their disputes it's just not being in the media at all. Mm. Perhaps a more justifiable restriction Andrea jumping back to you is, is where we say you can't report on the identities of children I mean and as a prosecutor isn't that one of the key principles that you have operated with for many, many years. Yes, we have, and, and, and it works. Um, mm. and, and we have to understand, it doesn't even matter what the nature of the transgression is. They really are vulnerable. I only did one rape matter in my entire 25-year career, and it was in 1997. It was of an eight-year-old. I finished my matter, went to my senior prosecutor at the time and asked him to never, ever, ever mm -hmm. give me a matter of that nature. Mm -hmm. It's It's... You have to have an appreciation for what you put a child through. It's traumatic. It is really mm -hmm. traumatic. And then having everyone sitting in the courtroom. So the rules currently work very well, and I would rather we stick to those rules. But just to touch on something, if I may, friend, is, you know, with the tribunals, the companies don't want us to know what's going on. But take a rape matter. We have a woman who sits in an open court unless it's a child, tells everyone all of the gruesome details of what was done to her, how she was violated. And that's okay. No, it's not okay. And so the rules have got to be more consistent than they currently are. An equal playing field, at least. An equal playing field. I, I thought when the uh, uh, rape victim was testifying, it was closed. It usually is. There are some instances where they haven't. But where you also, the challenge you sit with is, you still have other people in that courtroom that are able to go out. They go and talk to people. They report on what is going on. You cannot restrict court personnel. I mean, yeah. uh, you know, a, a chatterbox is a chatterbox. And so those are the issues for me, is why is it that it is okay to say how I found my son's dead body all chopped up, lying there in pieces, all bloodied. I didn't know where to start. And yet there's these big corporates who make gazillions of dollars, who commit the worst transgressions. And yet it's okay. Yeah, it's okay not to bother them too much. And can we just let them get on with their business? And, and that's for me, private. that's not okay. And I mean, just on the, the access to children's criminal cases, I thought Judge Raulinga a few years ago, quite a creative solution in the Eugene Tablanche murder case. 
where we and other lawyers for media companies made application to access that trial because it was an adult being charged as well as a minor. So it was an interesting hybrid. And what Judge Ralinga eventually found by way of balancing the interest is that the media would be housed in a separate room adjoining the courtroom where they would witness through a camera the proceedings which would never be trained on the minor. They would never be able to publish the minor's identity, etc. But yet they could hear the evidence that was presented and report on that, as opposed to getting kind of daily briefings from the NPA, which was how it started off. And I thought that was quite a creative way of trying to balance transparency in an important case with protecting the minor. And I have to add, the minor's attorneys agreed with that regime. So that was also quite critical. Can I Fran. just to add on that? I think that we fully respect the the concerns that are raised about reporting on minors and generally will respect any rules and limitations that are imposed. What is difficult for us is when we don't know the rules. That's the first thing. The second thing is when someone else breaks the rule because then, I mean, we're kind of in competition with each other, right? So if someone gets that picture and we don't have the picture, then we have to say to our editors, well, they were breaking the rules. Um, with and no consequences. With no consequences. And I think that happened a little bit at the beginning with the Pistorius matter. Yes. And it was very hard for us, especially the local media, if I remember correctly, because for foreign media, they were here for one story and they could break rules and get away with it and get out the country and probably and never come back. And they were untouchable. And no one, but for us, we were going to be reporting on on trials further, so we couldn't take those risks because we wouldn't be trusted again. The re probably the reason why you had an easier time with the local journalists is because we all want to have a good relationship so that we can carry on doing our job going forward, and there was a lot more at stake for us. But it was really lousy when someone from, I don't know, foreign newspaper mm. would have the stuff that we get or have. And it feels so, unfair, of course, because they unfair. are scooping you without the consequences that you face. Yeah. Uh, but I think you, you have to factor in all the role players in the equation. And so we, as the prosecution, mm. were also highly frustrated yes. when we found that some of the pictures were out there. Mm. Uh, and then you find that actually some of it did go through the defense who strategically placed things at certain times, mm -hmm. as did other people. And, and do you now pick a fight? Do, do you just let it slide? Because what our business for the day was, was different to the sideshow that was going on. But where I do agree is when you have to cover a trial of that nature or any matter, I think the court officials, the tribunal or commission officials should in fairness have a briefing with the media houses, do the do's and don'ts and work through whatever may come up that they didn't foresee. I think that's the way to go. So yeah. that there's always the sit down and we know it's a consistent across the rule, uh, across the board rule for everybody. Well, thank you very much. That's all we have time for, for the show. It's been a fascinating discussion of how open justice works and how a balance needs to be struck with other competing interests. I'd like to give a very warm thank you to our guests, Advocate Andrea Johnson from the NPA and Franny Rapkin of the Mail and Guardian. This has been Weber Wenzel Legal Insights. I've been your host, Dario Milo. I'll be guiding you through this first season of podcasts on media law. Our executive producer is Paula Yoens. This podcast is produced for Weber Wenzel by volume. Until next time, publish responsibly. You have been listening to Weber Wenzel Legal Insights. 
You can find and subscribe to the podcast on all major platforms. For more expert legal insights and updates, visit WeberWenzel.com.